find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. Oh, hi! If you're looking for another spooky and funny podcast to add to your rotation, check out Anything Bones, now part of the Podmoth Network. Hey, Boneheads, I'm Sophie Schwartz. And I'm Caitlin Hart. And we're the hosts of Anything Bones, the podcast where we talk about bones and bone-related topics. Soph, what are bone-related topics? Thank you for asking, Caitlin. This can be anything from mausoleums to murderers, famous skeletons to cadaver dogs. Bone churches, mummies, serial killers. You'll hear about them all. And sometimes we have guests stop by and tell us their favorite bony tales. Check out Anything Bones on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever your little heart desires. We release new episodes every Saturday. Bone Voyage! Welcome to the Brutal, Bizarre, and Boozy Podcast. I'm Declan, the son. And I'm Jane, the mom. Enjoy a drink with us while we tell you some wild stories of the brutal and bizarre variety. Please keep in mind some of our stories might be upsetting to young or sensitive ears. This is the podcast where we talk about brutal crimes, bizarre occurrences, and get you drunk with cocktails themed around one of our stories. To lighten things up, we like to end our time with a chaser. Well, Declan, what story are you going to tell us today? Today, I'm going to be talking about a pretty gross story uh, of Leopold and Loeb. Ew. Yeah. I don't remember the details, but I know it was bad. Not a great story. What are you going to no. be telling us about? I am going to be talking about <clears throat> a plane hijacking that happened many years ago. Yes. Mm. And the drink that I brought for us to have with this story is bourbon and seven up. So there wasn't any particular recipe that I followed or found other than putting bourbon in a glass with some ice. And then I put seven up over the top of it. Nice. I don't like seven up. So I substituted it with Sprite, but okay. (laughs) Close enough. I don't think that would really necessarily matter, but I went with this drink because the main person in this story ordered it when they got in an airplane. I think I have an inkling of what your story is, but I'm not going to give it away. (laughs) Okay. Well, are you ready to try this drink? Yes. I think yours is a lot stronger than mine based on the color alone. (laughs) Mine looks like ginger ale. It does not taste like ginger ale. That's good, though. That bourbon is strong. I, it, it Bourbon with any soda is good, though. It's just kind of like a cheat code. I think, yeah, I think I it's best with Dr. Pepper. A bourbon and Dr. Pepper is a good drink. Oh, I've never had that. Yeah, it, it, it's um, pretty tasty. It what bourbon is, did you use? I used Maker, Maker's Mark because that's what I have. Yeah. What did you use? I used this swear jar. Found it that at the liquor store. And... Is frigging awesome looking. 
I love that. It's a cool bottle, but it's very yeah. hard to pour accurately because the opening is huge. Oh. <laughs> so it just, yeah, it is. It's like trying to pour a water bottle, but that's all right. It's hard not to do heavy pours with this stuff, I guess. Right, yeah. I only did an ounce in my lowball glass. How much did, did you just pour yours randomly? Or did you measure I yours? I did two fingers. Okay, and then yeah. topped it off with like I had a little can. Oh, yeah. Ours definitely don't look the same. No. Okay, here we go. I'm going to be telling you about the plane hijacking perpetrated by an unknown man whose identity has never been confirmed, but he is known as D.B. Cooper. I knew it. <laughs> so, on November 24th, 1971, Dan Cooper purchased his last-minute one-way ticket from Portland International Airport in Portland, Oregon, going to Seattle-Tacoma International Airport aboard Northwest Orient Airlines, which is an airline I have never heard of before. So I wonder if this story has anything you to do with it. put him out of business. <laughs> Maybe. Cooper was carrying a black briefcase and a brown paper bag, wearing a dark business suit and tie, white dress shirt, dark shoes, and a dark raincoat. Cooper was a white male, possibly in his 40s, with dark hair and eyes. Cooper calmly took his seat, 18E, at the back of the plane and ordered a bourbon and 7-Up from the flight attendant. Thus our drink. Drinking D.B. Cooper style. Yes, we are. On board with Cooper were six flight crew members and 36 other passengers. The flight left on time at 2.50 p.m. for the 30-minute flight north to Seattle. Shortly after takeoff, Cooper handed flight attendant Florence Schaffner a note. She was seated behind Cooper, but she placed the note in her purse without reading it, assuming it was Cooper's phone number. She, she basically thought that he was hitting on her and she was like, whatever. He commented to her that she should read the note as he was carrying a bomb. I just, I, I, I can imagine... I put myself in his position and I hand her the note and I'm just sweating, gripping the seat. And then it's just like yeah. 20 minutes pass and nothing's happened. And then it's just like, do you read the note? Did you read the note I gave you? <laughs> you should really read it. It's important. <laughs> I don't think it was that long, but he did say, you should read the note because I'm carrying a bomb. And oh, probably she pulled the note out and found that he had requested that she sit next to him because he had a bomb. She did as he asked and requested to see the bomb he mentioned. He opened his briefcase and showed her what she assumed to be dynamite wired to a battery. There were long cylinders okay. with wires and they were going to a battery. Okay. He then proceeded to tell her his demands. He was asking for four parachutes and $200,000 
which in today's money equates to almost $1.5 million. So, okay. Yeah. When you hear that number, it's like, what are you going to do with 20K or 200K? But one realistically, 1 million is a good asking number. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. Florence wrote down Cooper's demands and delivered them to the cockpit. The pilot, Captain Scott, requested Florence to stay in the cockpit to take notes while another flight attendant, Tina Mucklow, went back to sit by Cooper. Tina was asked, was tasked with being the liaison between Cooper and the cockpit. Through Tina, he made some additional demands. He wanted a refueling truck in Seattle to meet the plane while all passengers remained on board. Passengers would be released after Cooper had received the money. The parachutes would come last. Captain Scott notified Seattle-Tacoma Airport traffic control of the situation, and they in turn notified local police and the FBI. Captain Scott also notified the president of Northwest Orient Airlines, who had authorized the payment of the ransom. Because gathering the funds and parachutes would take time, the passengers were informed that their normally 30-minute flight would take a little longer because of a minor mechanical problem. For almost two hours, the flight circled the Seattle-Tacoma airport. During that time, flight attendant Tina remained by Cooper's side as he had requested. She wait, later wait, noted, sorry, where was... Yeah. What was the destination and arrival points again? They left... Um, it was a flight from Portland to Seattle. And they were up in the air for three hours, just circling? Yeah, for two hours they circled. It was supposed to take 30 minutes, but they were in there for two hours because they knew it was going to take time and they didn't want to land the plane right before they had everything assembled. So, yeah. And having been on, like, planes that commute back and forth those short distances, there's oftentimes repeat passengers. So they probably knew oh this is a 30 minute flight and something's weird i mean they knew that it was taking longer than expected and they were told that it was a minor mechanical problem but i've also been on a flight where they told us there was a mechanical problem and i thought i was going to die legit balled my face off thought i was dying that's the worst in my opinion that's the i'd rather hear oh we're getting attacked than right we're getting right what that could mean a headlight out or the axle out in a car. So, yeah. Uh, uh, what, what is it? A headlight or a fucking turbine right. or what? <laughs> I'd be freaking out. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Uh, the flight attendant, Tina, later noted that Cooper seemed familiar with the geographical area and that his demeanor was rather nice. At one point, he stated that he didn't have a grudge with her airline company, but just had a grudge. I'm not pissed at you. I'm just pissed, basically. Uh, Money from several Seattle banks was used to fill the ransom, and the FBI took microfilm pictures of all of the serial numbers. Initially, Cooper was offered parachutes from the nearby military base, but he rejected these and demanded civilian parachutes that deployed with manual ripcords. He wanted two front reserve chutes, and two back main parachutes. Just before 5.30 p.m., the ransom had been fully assembled and the flight prepared for landing. Approximately 15 minutes later, the plane landed. 
Cooper had demanded only one person associated with the airline could deliver the ransom and flight attendant Tina was to retrieve it. She led the air, she left the aircraft while all the passengers remained seated and retrieved the money. <clears throat> so at this point, the passengers have got to be like, and I didn't find anything where they interviewed the passengers and they were like, oh yeah, we knew something was shady, but it, it's got to be weird. Uh, once she delivered the money to Cooper, he approved for the rest of the passengers to leave and also allowed two flight attendants to leave. Tina went back out several times to retrieve the parachutes. It took approximately two hours to refuel the plane due to a technical problem, which irritated Cooper as he thought the process should be faster. While the plane was refueling, Cooper took a pocket knife and altered one of the reserve parachutes so that he could stuff money inside and it would make it easier to carry the ransom money. Cooper alerted the flight crew to fly south to Mexico City. He had specific instructions on the elevation and the speed to fly, as well as he wanted specific uh, configuration of the plane. Like he wanted the flaps at a certain angle. He wanted uh, landing gear and different things done to the plane. And they were like, mm, can't really do that. So and he, he must have known how the plane worked, but not enough right. to do it safely it sounds like well like the pilots were like this isn't safe well he knew it was safe the the pilots didn't know that that was one of the things i think i talk about later um was he knew stuff about that plane that even the flight attendant the the flight crew did not know because it was something that the airline Mm. the the manufacturer of the plane said, we don't need everyone to know about this feature. Okay. But he knew. So that plays into the whole, like, who the hell was this guy? But okay. uh, based on his configuration requests, the, uh, the flight crew said that they had to stop to refuel before they could get to Mexico City. So they planned to stop in Reno, Nevada. So this point, they're flying from Seattle to Reno and then Reno to Mexico City. Um, two hours after landing in Seattle, the flight was back in the air with Cooper and four crew members. The flight was followed secretly by three military planes at a distance. They were not visually watching the flight. They were just far enough back that they couldn't see it, but they were there if needed as Following their radar or something. Yeah. Tina was sent to the cockpit and Cooper remained in the back of the plane. Shortly after takeoff, the pilot received a warning, a warning light that the aft staircase had been lowered. So he asked Cooper over the intercom if he needed help, which Cooper denied. He said, nope, don't need your help. The plane then experienced some cabin pressure changes and an upward tilt in the tail position. So... Planes flying along, and then it goes like that. And then it's okay. Yeah. The plane, um, according to the co-pilot, this occurred near the suburbs uh, north of Portland when the tail position and the cabin pressure changed. When the plane was approaching Reno, the flight crew attempted to contact Cooper over the intercom, but without luck. 
Upon landing, the plane was searched, but Cooper was not on board, and the bomb squad determined that the plane was safe. The military pilots did not see anyone jump from the hijacked plane, and the radar did not pick up anyone using a parachute. But it was a dark night, so it would have been difficult for anyone to see anything, even if the military pilots had been closer. But again, they weren't close enough. They didn't actually see the plane, so they couldn't have seen anyone jumping out of it. And he's wearing dark clothes. Law enforcement searched the areas that were along the flight path, but no evidence of of the ransom or evidence of Cooper was located. They particularly focused on Southwest Washington, believing this would likely be the landing zone area based on the cabin pressure and the tail changes during the flight, but they couldn't find anything. Local and federal law enforcement questioned possible suspects, but no one was conclusively identified as being the hijacker. Some evidence was collected that officials hoped would identify Cooper, including a clip on his necktie, uh, I'm sorry, a clip on necktie, some hair and cigarette butts. At the time of the hijacking, DNA wasn't a tool being used, but fingerprints were. Unfortunately, no fingerprints uh, were found to identify Cooper. In later decades, when DNA became a useful tool, the idea of extracting DNA from the hair samples or the cigarette butts was useless because those samples had been lost. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. In the early uh, 2000s, some metal particles were identified on Cooper's tie, which led investigators to believe that Cooper may have worked for Boeing or a metal manufacturing company or even a chemical manufacturing company. The information. If he worked for Boeing, because then he would know that about the thing that the pilots didn't know. Right. Yeah. He knew that that plane could take off with the aft staircase down and he had asked them to do that and they said no we can't do that it's not safe the plane we can't do that but he knew that it could be and then he ended up deploying the staircase while they were in air and it nothing happened so he knew that Uh, This information hasn't resulted in any new leads, though. In all the decades that have passed, only a small amount of the ransom money has ever been located, and it was a random fine. In February 1980, about eight and a half years after the hijacking, an eight-year-old boy was raking the bank of the Columbia River for the purpose of building a fire with his family while they were on vacation. So the Columbia River basically divides Washington State and Oregon State from each other so it's in that washington oregon area right above portland that big river yep it's that river that divides the boy uncovered three packets of degraded cash totaling fifty eight hundred dollars that were later confirmed by the serial numbers to have been part of the ransom yes Experts believe the cash was deposited in this location from the river itself rather than having been purposefully buried there. They think it basically was possibly could have come from one of the rivers that goes that drains into the Columbia River. And then it was deposited along the shore of the Columbia River because of how much they were degraded, the location of them and and all of the stuff they thought 
that it hadn't been purposefully buried there. Okay. Investigators believe Cooper had substantial knowledge about flying and skydiving with spe specific information regarding this specific plane. Like I mentioned, he knew details about the aft stairs being able to open and the flight crew did not know that information. He also gave the pilot specific configurations of the, the flaps, like the angles of the flaps, uh, the speed and the altitude he wanted for the plane. While some people believe he would have needed significant skydiving experience to complete the jump, others think he would have only needed some basic skydiving background. Some investigators you, believe Cooper. You jump out and you pull the cord. What else do you need to know? <laughs> right. <laughs> but it was dark. You know, this is like after eight o'clock at night in November. Oh, yeah. The, okay. It was dark. Yeah. It was dark and it was cold. So and you need to have like he, a planned drop site or something. Because yes. uh, that air. Oregon's covered in trees. All of our outside yeah, listeners so who haven't Washington. been here, it, it's yeah. completely covered. The whole Pacific Northwest is just giant fucking trees. So you'd mm -hmm. have to have a planned landing spot. Right. So that's why some of the skeptics say there's no way he survived because he wouldn't have known specifically where he was jumping to target a specific landing zone. I, that's If he died, then you would have found a guy with 200 grand strung up in a tree in yeah. Portland, Washington area. <laughs> yeah. So some investigators believe Cooper could not have survived the jump and others believe he definitely survived. The only part of the ransom money that was ever located was the small amount found by the river. None of the rest of the money has ever been located. None in like a like a bank deposit like they scan. No. no, no, nothing. And they have all the serial numbers. That money has never been located. He took that money and he went to like Aruba or something. Maybe <laughs> he went some yeah. tropical island where that Maybe. currency is three times the value and right. he's bought a mansion and he's sipping yeah. margaritas on the beach. He's sipping bourbon and seven up on the beach. Yes, he is for sure. <laughs> the parachutes have also never been located. And that area of Washington and Oregon has been searched for decades. Nothing. No evidence of Cooper's body has ever been found either. Now, the ironic so, thing. Uh, okay, yeah. Um, there have been possible suspects who have even claimed that they were him, but then they have been ruled out because there's no way they could have been him. Because they're like, what about this? There was even one person who, ad who claimed to be D.B. Cooper. I had a grudge. I did it. And when they found out that there could still be prosecuted for it, they were like, oh. Never mind, it wasn't me. The real DB Cooper is never going to give himself up unless he's on like his deathbed. Like, right? What he would have done it by now if he didn't, or if he, uh, I, I don't know. He's never right. gonna. We're never gonna know who he is until he, nope. unless he has a kid and he's dying from cancer and he's like, come here. 
I'm right. JB Cooper. <laughs> and and look in the attic because there's all the money. <laughs> look in the attic. There's two unused parachutes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Why did he have four? That was my question. Why did he have four of them? One they of them he used, one of them he emptied right. out to put the cash in, right? And then he had right. two extras. But he did that. He emptied it out because he had originally asked for the money to be in a in a bag that he could carry, like a knapsack, a backpack kind of thing. And they didn't give it to him in a bag that he could carry. So he improvised and used the parachute okay. bag. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, they think that he asked for four total parachutes because they because he didn't trust them, and so he wanted to make sure that he had something that he inspected would inspected them himself. Yeah, yeah. So oh, that'd be a that'd be a real night. You pull it and it doesn't go because they tampered with right. it. <laughs> just, yeah. Well, <laughs> they're gonna find yeah. this money in the woods someday. Some hunter. Yeah. No one's found the money and they've never found anything that uh, the the interesting thing that I did find was they were searching an area that they thought he could have been uh, had landed in and they found a body and they were sure that it was him. And <laughs> it was it was a female body that ended up being a victim of a serial killer that I'm going to do on a later show. Oh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. I love researching one story and then I find all these other stories and I'm like, this is so cool. <laughs> yeah, makes things easier. So what story are you telling us about? This gory Leopold and Loeb story? Yes, Leopold okay. and Loeb. Leopold and Loeb refers to the kidnapping and murder of 14-year-old Bobby Franks, conducted by college students Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb. Nathan was born on November 1904 to a wealthy family in Chicago. Leopold claimed to have spoken his first words at the age of four months. I don't know anything about kids, but that seems very early. <laughs> I'm going to call bullshit on yeah. that one. At the time of the murder, he had completed an undergraduate degree at the University of Chicago with plans of beginning studies at Harvard Law School. How old was he? For what? Well, how old was he when he had completed this degree? Uh, I think he was he committed the crime. 18. Okay, one of them was eighteen, was... one of them was nineteen. I can't remember which one it is. Oh, okay, they're oh, pretty much I... the same age. I thought they were younger. Okay, sorry. So, as a child, he was more brains than brawn, and after being picked on and ostracized, he began to study things that he was interested in rather than interacting with his peers. Nathan claimed to speak five languages fluently and had achieved a measure of national recognition as an ornithologist, which is uh, bird, somebody who studies birds. I did not know he was into ornithology. Yes. But he's not doing a big year. <laughs> 
No. (laughs) (laughs) Richard Loeb was born in June 1905 to a wealthy Chicago lawyer. Loeb was an avid reader with a passion for historical novels and crime stories. At age 12, he entered the an innovative university high school. With the encouragement of his governess, he completed the high school education in two years. He would later go on to become the University of Michigan's youngest graduate at age 17. Oh. Yeah, smart motherfucker. Real yeah. Smart. Not too Following smart, graduation. Though. Yeah. So following graduation from Michigan, Loeb enrolled in a course in constitutional history at the University of Chicago Law School. (laughs) Loeb was more social than Leopold and often made friends and even played tennis. Though Leopold and Loeb knew each other casually while growing up, they began to see more of each other in the uh, the mid-1920s. And the relationship flourished at the University of Chicago, particularly after they discovered a mutual interest in crime. Leopold was particularly fascinated by Frederick uh, Nietzsche's. Sorry, it's a German name. I, I probably butchered Nietzsche. that. Nietzsche. Nietzsche's. Oh, no. Ni- yeah, Nietzsche's con- uh, concept of Superman, which is uh, a book that he wrote explaining uh, in individuals that possessed extraordinary and unusual capabilities, whose superior intellects allowed them to rise above laws and rules. So they became super fascinated with this book. And Leopold believed that him and Loeb were supermen from the book. And uh, in a letter, uh, Leopold, sorry, in a letter, uh, Loeb wrote, a superman is on account of certain superior qualities inherent in him, exempt from the ordinary laws which govern men. He is not liable for anything he may do. Oh, so that's kind of that's a convenient. foreshadowing to this story. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. And I'm going to refer to it as supermen because that's the English translation to the book that they were okay. obsessed with. So they began their supermen crime spree by breaking and entering at a University of Michigan frat house in which they stole a camera, typewriter, and smaller items. However, this time this crime didn't get the attention that the two wanted, so they began to ramp up, even committing arson. However, nothing was getting them the recognition that they wanted, so they couldn't they didn't see or they didn't feel that they the society saw them as supermen because it's like oh these little petty crimes are just getting put in the back of the newspaper instead of headlines so okay so they had to ramp it up yeah the two spent seven months planning their so-called perfect crime okay the crime was kidnapping and murdering an adolescent boy yeah After a lengthy search for a suitable victim, mostly on the grounds of Harvard School for Boys in the Kenwood area, which I think the uh, we did a story from there, Kenwood area, that was the baby boy in the box, right? Oh, I don't remember if that was Kenwood or not. I can't remember. I'm 
I'm pretty sure that guy, the Peep and Tom, was at the Harvard School for Girls. Oh, I don't remember that. I'm pretty but sure I could be. That was your story, so whatever. Yeah, I don't, yeah, that was a while ago. I don't remember that. <laughs> I know. So, uh, they they were looking on the Harvard School for Boys to find a victim, and because uh, that was where Leopold had been educated, and the pair decided upon Robert Bobby Franks, the 14 year old son of wealthy Chicago watch manufacturer Jacob Franks. Bobby Franks was also Loeb's second cousin and an across-the-street neighbor who played tennis uh, with Loeb several times. Oh, my God. Yeah. Leopold and Loeb put their plan into motion on the afternoon of May 21st, 1924. Using an automobile that Loeb... uh, Sorry, using an automobile that Leopold had rented under the name Morton D. Ballard. They offered Frank a ride home uh, as he was walking home from school, and the boy initially refused because his house was less than two blocks away. He was like, I'm fine. I'm almost there. Yeah. But Loeb persuaded him to enter the car to discuss a a tennis racket that he was using to play tennis with Loeb. Oh. So once Franks was in the car, and now this, the order of process, the the way this happened is highly debated, but. Okay. So either Leopold or Loeb, I'm just going to say Loeb. Loeb struck him several times in the head with the chisel and dragged him into the back of the car where he gagged him. So Leopold was driving and Loeb hit him over the back of the head. Okay. But that's also discussed. They each one claimed differently. So the other okay, so they're blaming each other. Okay. Yeah, basically. Shocking. Franks passed away in the back seat of the car, and the men drove to their planned dropping spot in Hammond, Indiana. After nightfall they removed and discarded Frank's clothes, then concealed the body in a culvert along the Pennsylvania Pennsylvania Railroad tracks north of the lake. To obscure the body's identity, they poured hydrochloric acid on the face and genitals to disguise the fact that he had been circumcised. Leopold called Frank's mother, identifying himself as George Johnson, and told her that Frank's had been kidnapped. Instructions for delivering the ransom would follow. After mailing the typed ransom note and burning their bloodstained clothing, they clean, uh, then cleaning the bloodstains from the rented vehicle's upholstery, they spent the remainder of the evening playing cards. As you do after you commit a... Ugh, after you gross. kill your 14-year-old Neighbor, cousin. cousin. Barf. Leopold called the Franks the next morning to give them the first set of instructions for delivering the ransom. However, Frank's body had already been discovered at this point, so the two ditched their ransom plan. Well, that's nice. I'm glad that he was found. Do you have any idea yeah, how maybe. far the the body was placed from where they kidnapped him? Like, do you know how far? Because you in said it was in Indiana. Indiana. I, yeah, I don't but know how all far those it states is, over there are state. like, yeah, but all those states over there are like little teeny tiny states, and they're all close together. It's not like 
the West Coast where it's three individual states and over there it's like, you know, a, our county is bigger than some of the states over there, I think. Yeah, Chicago is right. They're pretty much on the same uh, lake. Okay. So hmm. they drove down the lake and then dumped them in Hammond, uh, Indiana, which is Indiana. only a okay. couple highways away. So it, okay. was, it didn't seem like it was too far. Too far. Okay. So Leopold and Loeb destroyed the typewriter and burned uh, the car robe, which is like a, a lap blanket that they had in the car. Okay. They had uh, they had used that to move the body, so they burnt it up. I've never they heard went about that their term lives before. Used after this. I, yeah, this took place in the 20s, so. <laughs> right. A car robe. Car robe. I feel like I need that. A car robe. Okay. An investigation was launched, and Leopold and uh, oops, an investigation was launched, and Leopold, believing he was a Superman, spoke confident and freely to the police, even going as far as saying, "If I were to murder anybody, it would be just such a cocky little son of a bitch as Bobby Franks." Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I guess their mistaken belief in their superpower was very helpful. Yeah. Okay. Police found a pair of eyeglasses near Frank's body. Although common in prescription and frame, they were fitted with an unusual hinge purchased by only three customers in Chicago, one of whom was Leopold. <laughs> When questioned, Leopold offered the possibility that his glasses might have dropped out of his pocket during a bird-watching trip on the previous weekend. Oh, right. Yes, because they're ornithologists. Ornithologists. Yes. But God, yes. Of if course. If you wear glasses, how do you leave a crime scene without your glasses? What yeah. the fuck? <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah. Ugh. Good point. Yeah, good point. Leopold Maybe he Loeb. needed them for driving. And like they were reading glasses or something. They weren't maybe... a full prescription. Right. Yeah, could be. He was so jacked up from the adrenaline of what he had just done. He was like, glasses? What glasses? So Leopold and Lowe were summing, summoned for formal Leopold and Loeb were summoned for formal questioning on May 29th. They asserted that on the night of the murder, they had picked up two women in Chicago using Leopold's car, then dropped them off sometime later near a golf course without learning their last names. Their alibi was exposed as a fabrication when Leopold's chauffeur told police that he was repairing Leopold's car, while the men claimed <laughs> to be using it. <laughs> so, I love that. <laughs> That's awesome. The chauffeur's wife confirmed that the car was parked in Leopold's garage on the night of the murder, <laughs> and the destroyed typewriter was what the destroyed typewriter was recovered from the Jackson Park Lagoon on June seventh. Okay. Loeb was the first to confess. And he claimed that Leopold had planned everything as the, and was the one to strike Franks. Leopold claimed that Loeb was the one who planned it and killed Franks. Right. So it is fucking flipped on each other. 
real good friends. Point I see. a finger somewhere else. Yep. Yeah. Testimony from eyewitness Carl Olvey, who said he saw Loeb driving and Leopold in the back seat minutes before the kidnapping, suggesting that Leopold could have been the killer. On September 10th, 1924, both boys were sentenced to life and 99 years. So Nice. On January 28th, 1936, Loeb was attacked by fellow inmate James Day with a straight razor in the shower room. He died mm. soon after in the prison hospital. Day claimed that Leopold had sexually assaulted him, but he was unharmed while Loeb sustained more than 50 wounds, including defensive Oof. wounds on his arms and hands. His throat had been slashed from behind. Yikes. After 33 years and numerous unsuccessful petitions, Leopold was paroled in March 1958. Really? I did not know that. Oh, shit. Yeah. And then what happened sure to him? Now. Pretty sure he died of like a heart attack or something. Let me look Le- it up. Yeah, because that was, well, he was paroled in 1958, so yeah. I can't imagine he'd still be alive. He'd be 120 years old. (laughs) Wasn't he born in like 1903 or something? (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Leopold's past prison years. Cut this little part out. Leopold died of diabetes-related heart attack on August 29th, 1971, at the age of 66. Oh, he still lived so for a long dead. time after getting out of prison. Yeah, especially if they wow. did this shit when they were 18 and 19. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Gross. Well, do you have a chaser to brighten things up? I do have a chaser. So my chaser is an article. It's from an article that I found online. Can't remember where I found it, but this uh, is about a dog door. You know how dad always said that we needed a dog door. And this is a reason why you don't have a dog door. So a dog door worked well for an intruder because the homeowner... And this occurred in Arizona, came home to find that a visitor had used the dog door to get access to the house. The visitor was laying down nice and comfy on the dog bed. I mean, you know, came through the dog door, might as well use the dog bed. It was a bobcat. A bobcat had gotten through the dog door and made itself at home. And was just chilling. Where was the dog? That's what I his job was. I don't know. I don't know where the dog was. I think a bobcat would fuck a dog up. Bobcats are big. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. They're like the was... size of a medium dog. So if it's not. Yeah, like there's pictures big... in there. It was a good sized cat. Yeah. That's scary. Yeah. <laughs> I do not want to find that in my house when I wake up. Right. The cat was able to get out before officers showed up, but the homeowner was able to get some pictures of the cat lounging on the dog bed. So That's funny. Yep. What chaser do you have? 
my chaser is also related to animals breaking and entering okay. into homes. <laughs> oh, really? So, nice. I saw a video on Instagram of this guy. He came home and he was walking uh, two little dogs and his girlfriend was with them. And he, it, it's like a nest camera of inside the house. And this guy is just screaming. He's like, get the fuck out of here. And the, the little dogs are running around him. And then you see this bear poke its face in and the guy <gasps> just punches the bear in the face and the bear runs away. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. He, he cold clocks the fucking bear. He punches the bear in the head and then the bear just runs away. It, was, it wasn't a grizzly. It was like a little black bear. But still, that's a bear. How did the bear get in and how did the bear get out? I think they were going in. The bear was at the porch and came in. He put his head in the door and then the dude just punched him. Oh, oh the bear <laughs> wasn't inside the house yet. No, okay. I, I think it was right. following them. And then it okay. when they went inside, it decided to take a little peek inside and the guy was not yeah, having it. Yeah, because there's just... yummies inside. Yeah, there's the little yummies. dogs that they were walking. They were like little hey, chihuahua-sized dogs. You know, and that For sure. That's a, that's a snack. snack for a bear. Yes, yeah. that's an hors d'oeuvre. It's fine. Ugh, I don't know. That, that'd be so scary. Oh, <laughs> yeah, for sure. I No, thank you. I don't want any bears. Nope. Mm -mm. That's wild. Well, thanks for telling me stories today, Declan. It was nice yeah. chatting with you, as always. All right. Well, I love you. Love you, too. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening and supporting our podcast. We would love for you to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And if you want to give us a five-star rating, we would forever be grateful. You can contact us at our email via thebrutalandbizarre at gmail.com or on our Instagram at thebrutal underscore bizarre underscore boozy. Thank you.